Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, back after a long hiatus where we were honoring the strikes of the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild. And welcome to our first episode of Season 3 in 2024. Today we're going to be talking about a new collection of essays about Star Wars by two self-described ACA fans, which is a term I learned from the introduction to the volume that's defined as an academic who is also a fan of the subject they're writing about. And while I'm not a credentialed academic, it's that critical, rigorous approach that I try to bring to Star Wars here at Trash Compactor. So I was really interested in speaking with my guests that I'm thrilled to welcome today. The editors of this new Star Wars essay collection, Star Wars Essays from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. I'm pleased to welcome Emily Strand and Amy H. Sturgis. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So the book is a collection of 10 essays broken down into three sections, which could more or less be described as being about sort of in-universe subjects. And the second was sort of a collection of essays about the outside ideas and the ideologies that influence the text. And the third was sort of about the nature of the storytelling itself. Is that sound accurate? Yeah. Yeah. That, that nails it. Now, Oh, great. <laughs> um, did you set out to find different essays that would cover subjects that broke down along those lines? Or is it just sort of you solicited essays and then you figured out how to categorize them, how to break them down? More of the yeah. latter, actually. Uh, we originally just wanted the best essays we could get that would appeal to both scholars and lay readers, fans who were interested. And so we aimed for those that could move the conversation ahead in some way or another. And then we decided we would find <laughs> the, the connecting threads of the themes uh, once, we, once we had our essays lined up. So who do you imagine the audience is for this volume? I mean, I guess you just said it. It's, it's for, for academics and also casual fans, I suppose. And I guess there is a Venn diagram of the two. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself an academic. Well, I'm not an academic. I'm not credentialed, um, though it's it's explorations like this that I find very, very fascinating. And like I said, I try to choose topics and start conversations on this podcast that are a little more than just, you know, surface reactions to things. Yeah, substantive. Yeah, for whatever reason, you know, I think when you're a fan of something, especially for a long time, you start to get really interested in what's going on under the hood and like exploring how it works and why you like it so much. Um, and so I forget how I came across your volume, but this is exactly the kind of thing that I love and I devoured it. I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. Well, that is, I would say that you in fact are our tar target audience. You know, if, if everything oh. you're saying is, is true, then, then, you know, we, cause I mean, obviously, Academics can write for academics. That's great. Yeah. I understand. That's a that's a con that's a kind of a sometimes a self-contained conversation. And it's an important conversation. And and you know, and sometimes those conversations have other people who who kind of um listen in but don't let necessarily participate. But we really wanted this book to be accessible to a fan such as yourself, who, like you said, is so um has has who loves this property so much that they do want to see what's going on under the hood and they get energy from those kinds of ideas. And um, it's, it's, 
it's not hard. It's, it's not hard to write accessibly um, and yet be writing, you know, uh, for an audience that can go either academic or non-academic. You just have to make sure that those ideas come through and that the language doesn't get in the way of itself. Um, the source material doesn't get in the way of itself. You know, um, I, I, one of the things I love about the book is that we have sources cited from, you know, peer-reviewed um, academic collections on Star Wars. We have other academic material that's n totally non-Star Wars that's also cited and, and, and undergirds many of the essays. But we also have middle reader Star Wars literature cited. <laughs> Just, we have, like, cartoons. We ha you know, I cited episodes of The Clone Wars and The Bad Batch in my essay. And, and you know, because I, I think that all of that content is is worthy of the kind of scrutiny that you know you, that you said really jazzes you up and and that so that's the kind of so but we would also be happy if um uh professors who teach you know uh say um you know uh fiction writing or um about invented languages or about you know that they would pick up an essay of this and assign it as as required reading for a college course like that would or, or a graduate course that would be a really exciting thing you know and and we we definitely had that in mind as well as we put the book together and edited the book um amy anything to add to that oh i i agree exactly with what you're saying and and as you said academics can write for other academics but uh, one of the important things we wanted was for there to be a real multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary conversation here, which means also that academics aren't writing for the five other academics in their little subfield. You have, you know, theologians writing in conversation with philosophers and historians and, and uh, linguists. And so that also required a certain kind of accessibility of language so that you could move back and forth. You can't get caught up in, in little jargon that only a few people use. But also going back to the idea of the classroom, I've had the very good fortune of being able to teach courses devoted to Star Wars at both the undergraduate and graduate level. And so I was also thinking in the back of my mind the entire time, my sort of wish list for a book like this that could capture students who are very interested fans of Star Wars, but also students who are new to Star Wars and were wanting a kind of snapshot of how deep and broad discussions about Star Wars could be. And so look over here, here's what these kinds of, of uh, uh, you know, the people who are trained with these certain tools, here are questions they ask about Star Wars. And over here, people who are looking at Star Wars through these lenses, these are some of the things they're asking. But it's all a big conversation that hopefully will open the doors for other people to want to uh, engage with these questions that are being raised and these topics. And so the goal there being as open and accessible and welcoming as possible in the language and in the topics. That was the goal. No, completely. And I think a very good illustration of that is the very first essay, the one about the, um, actually, this is embarrassing. Is it, is it Twi'leks or Twi'leks? I've never actually said it out loud. I've only really read it. I, I say Twi'leks. Twi'leks? I, that's what I do. Okay. I, and I'm totally basing that on the one scene of The Mandalorian, I think it was season one, The Prisoner, where mm. um, the guy, I can't remember his character's name. Uh, the guy played by the comedian. I don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of comedians yeah. in The Mandalorian. 
There are. He calls her a, tra- a, a, a crazy twee. <laughs> so a crazy that twee. That has always okay, good point. Okay. shaped my... So, but I've heard it both ways. I've heard it both ways. Yeah. Well, so let's go with Twi'lek. I'll defer to your, uh, to your academic expertise. <laughs> but no, what you were saying, Amy, I think is a really good illustration of how um, Star Wars can be used as sort of an introduction to broader topics with uh, uh, the Twi'lek essay... That I found super fascinating because, you know, it had never occurred to me to look at it that way. But the evolution of the depiction of this fictional species in Star Wars really is sort of in microcosm, the evolution of the depiction of women in media and the roles that you see them in and the roles that they're allowed to play. And I thought that that was really fascinating. So, yeah, so so I totally see how that can be used in an academic setting for someone who's maybe not interested in Star Wars, but yet it's something that Star Wars, using the example of Star Wars, can communicate these ideas very succinctly and very well. Um, I have so many questions from what you guys just said, but um, I was going to ask you, what do you think is the value of applying academic rigor to a pop culture franchise like Star Wars? And um, how do you respond to people that maybe see what you're doing or hear what you're doing and think it's a little, you know, maybe lightweight or who think it's just entertainment and sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. How do you respond to something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I'm not positive that people who hold that that idea, uh, that notion, really want to be responded to. <laughs> a lot of times Fair I point. just kind of go find someone else to talk to. But, um, but, but I, I, you know... Fandom has become such a phenomenon for people. Um, I think everybody's got some kind of fandom, you know, whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or Harry Potter or something else. Um, you know, I, I, so we just had GalaxyCon in, in, I live in Columbus, Ohio. We just, we just had GalaxyCon in early December and um, it was our second GalaxyCon. And it was, there were so many more people there than last year, which was our first year. Um, which, I mean, I guess is natural, but I just think that the idea of being a fan of something and, and a kind of a hardcore, you know, um, fan where you get, you go all the way in, you know, you've got the costume and you've got the, the tote bag and the, the backpack and the, you know, and you want to immerse in that world with other people who also want to immerse in that world. I think it's, it's such a growing phenomenon that when you leverage, it's a tool that teachers can leverage to teach a particular topic. So like when my son was learning to swim, which was a uh, bit of a struggle for him, um, he was just one of those kids who just really struggled with, with swimming. Um, he, he had the most success with a teacher who figured out to make everything a basketball metaphor, you know, for him. So when, so when you're doing this, you're, you're, you're grabbing the ball and you're pulling it to you and you're, you know, and all of a sudden he was swimming because he, he got that, she got that point of leverage and she helped him transfer the knowledge and the understanding and the experience that he had to a whole new set of concepts. And I think when teachers can do that, and the more teachers do that, can find that point of leverage with their students um, and, and, and do that, um, then I think that the more success they'll have. Now, I mean, it, these courses that, that Amy teaches, and I have taken some of Amy's courses and they are absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, the, the wonderful thing is that she has a room full of people 
who have, you know, willingly signed up for a course on this topic. So all of these other, the, the, the different, you know, really serious themes. Um, oh my gosh, you know, uh, t- tyranny and democracy, you know, um, these themes that we see, especially in the prequels that are, are just so, how a democracy becomes a tyranny, um, you know, it's just so important today. And to be able to use this light thing you know, to help students understand and to recognize, you know, when it starts happening in their own society, you know, because they learn to recognize it from Star Wars. Um, I mean, how else are we going to learn to recognize it? You know, I've, so I don't think that's light at all. Um, so maybe if I, if I cared to give a response to those people, that would be my, my long-winded response. A- Amy, I'm sure Amy has a much shorter one, a much more graceful. <laughs> Neither. Neither, not shorter, not more graceful. Uh, but you said it was beautiful. But yes, the stories we tell ourselves matter. And when stories are popular, that doesn't translate as the stories are bad. In fact, they're feeding something in us we we want, right? And some of the same people who would claim, oh, this is low culture, forget that Charles Dickens or even Shakespeare were considered to be Uh, you know, the lowest common denominator of popular culture at one time or another. But if we look at the building blocks of what the stories that that we tell ourselves and keep coming back to, that's really important in a a multi-generational kind of way here, um, and a global kind of way, a a storytelling franchise like Star Wars, there's there's something there, right, that that uh, is answering questions or or giving us tools that we that we need. And again, all it takes is just a little bit of, of research to see, as, as Emily was already talking about, uh, George Lucas at the beginning saying, you know, oh, let's, how, how, why do democracies vote in tyrants? Um, th- that's, that's a, let's think about Rome. Let's think about, you know, Napoleonic, let's think about Hitler. Uh, he's, he's using history in a particular kind of way. And those who came after Lucas also building on history in a particular kind of way. I'm, my field is intellectual history, the history of ideas. And it occurred to me quite early on in my career that science fiction, you know, being, being the, the genre in which the ideas are the heroes is a great way to look at the ideas that matter to people and how they're being transmitted and the questions that are being asked and the the pushes that are being made by those storytellers in, in the direction of what they hope will be a better world, uh, but also the anxieties of the time and the concerns and go to to uh, Ahsoka. And you have characters saying it keeps happening over and over and over again, right? History keeps repeating. But other, other large questions we keep returning to, free will or destiny, right? Um, questions of, of how different cultures, uh, East and West, have been talking about uh, issues of the individual and the community. And, and these are big ideas. And just because they're told in stories that grandparents share with grandchildren and you know uh, people who are dating each other say if if you want to if you want to spend time with me you've got to know i love these stories right i hear over and over again from students who take my classes i ask why are you here and so many of them say my dad loves this or my girlfriend loves this or everybody on the hall is watching this and i want to understand they're trying to 
to build bridges with people who matter to them. If they're not already fans, they know people who are. Why does that matter to people? Those are stories that are important. The stories we tell matter. And I, that's how I would answer that kind of question. No, I think both of you are exactly right. And um, I just want to clarify that question was not something that I think is just sort of a <laughs> straw man that I imagined, or maybe I'm giving voice to an insecurity that I have about why I spend so much time thinking. About. At any given moment in the day, if you ask me what I'm thinking about, the odds are not low that it's something Star Wars related. <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I do feel that way as well. I saw... Somebody, somebody who's big in Star Wars, as a Star Wars com commentator, Brian, uh, I can't remember his last name now, I'm sorry. But he, he tweeted something a few years ago that was like, I have to constantly remember that most people don't think about Star Wars for most of the day. <laughs> right. That in and of itself, I think, makes it a worthy subject for academic study. If it's this thing that is preoccupying right. so many people let's understand what it's doing and how it works and what are the shared values of those people you know and what are the not yeah. shared values of those people you know where it's to me it's it's fascinating to see um to to be so i'm i'm a member of the rebel legion and the 501st and and it's amazing to me to see the points of disparity among us you know where it's like it's it's just it's we have a big group chat and uh, for our local squad for the 501st and it's it's just funny how you know some people can just lob a bomb into and everybody's but everybody's kind of equally up in arms about it so the level of our passion is is the same but we feel different ways about you know andor or jar jar pinks or or something else you know so so it's it is interesting it's you know and and there's as much i feel like i don't know proportionately how much you know but there's a lot of sociological work anthropological work that's being done on fandoms and how you know how these fandoms operate and w what is the mindset what what does cause people to to be become very preoccupied with these things and um so it's it's just fascinating and and like so you know i i, I um I understand that, you know, other people may have other interests in the, and that's fine too. But but I think you should be a fan of what it is that you're s devoting your academic career to, whether it's it's uh, Star Wars uh, or or the Civil War or, you know, medieval, you know, England or, you know, you should probably be a fan and be so passionate that somebody somebody would would call you out as a fan of that thing. Uh, I think otherwise your work may be a little bit boring. <laughs> Maybe a little well, bit dishonest. Answers, well, that's very interesting because that answers another question um, that I had. Again, not a view that I hold personally necessarily, but I was just curious to get your take on it. I was going to ask you, do you think being a fan of what you're studying is a is generally a positive thing? Or do you think there's something to be said for a kind of academic detachment that a non-fan would bring to an analysis of Star Wars? Um, and I think you just answered it. I did, and I'll I'll turn it over to Amy. But I will also say, I mean, I'm I'm a religious studies scholar, and and I I teach comparative religions, um, and I teach nursing students, and and sometimes some of them are like, uh, I'm also a practicing Catholic, so so some of them will come in the classroom and be like, well, how can you teach me this if you're a practicing Catholic? You're you know you're gonna mm. you're gonna make it seem like the Catholic Church is the best. And I say no, I, I you know I think. If you're if you don't think your own religion is the best religion, then you should probably get a different religion. Um, but 
the my ability to teach another religion, you know, stems from my own passion for mine, because then I can apply that understanding and have some empathy for somebody else who is equally passionate about their religion, which only makes me want to um, respect that passion because I share it, you know. So it's just not about sharing the beliefs. It's about sharing the passion um, and, and the devotion and, and the cultural kind of immersion in it. Um, so that I can understand. But but I'll, I'll turn it over to Amy for more on that. That's that's a great point. And I, I came up through fandom um, at a t- and into academia at a time when fandom studies was being born, when people like Henry Jenkins and Camille Bacon-Smith and others were looking at the same things I was reading, fan fiction, looking at fan art and saying, there's something here, right? That people are are making meaning and they are taking a shared vocabulary and they are speaking to each other. And that has, as Emily's already pointed out, fandom studies has, has taken on its own uh, life as uh, a, a form of media studies. It's very, very important. But it took fans who were calling themselves in the late 80s and, and early 90s ACA fans or ACA fin uh, to recognize that there was something there worth studying at all. And I think fans are close enough to the ground to say, hey, this actually has meaning. Um, but but also being a fan of something is is not the same thing as being uncritical of something. And I think all of us, <laughs> all three of us know, you get a group of fans together where, you know, there's nitpicking, there's criticism, there's debate going on. Uh, but, but on the same, you know, uh, a wavelength here, you show me a Shakespeare scholar who thinks Shakespeare is eh, meh, Right? No one goes into to studying Shakespeare who's uninterested in Shakespeare. And again, it's it's what Emily was talking about, that sort of motivating force. You have to have a passion there to recognize its value as a subject of study. But that doesn't mean, in fact, quite the opposite, that it's not worth criticism and careful, you know, uh, analysis. Um, but but the the starting point, this this is important enough to be uh, worth looking at. And, and it, it's not just Star Wars. I mean, science fiction studies, uh, science fiction as genre and genre as literature, big L, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's all part and part of the same kind of part and parcel, I mean, of the same kind of, of debate. And a lot of that I think is, is a kind of gatekeeping. And it's not something that would be asked of people studying other things. Um, so I think, you know, a little context helps, but I'm, I'm completely on the same page as, as Emily. I think it's a, it's a, uh, a benefit. It's, it's a feature, not a bug. If, if you're, you know, if you tied to and connected to what you're studying. I will bring up Amy Raquel as an example of, of somebody who's a fan, you know, I mean, she writes nonfiction books for Star Wars, right? So she, she, and she wrote the essay on the Twi'leks. And I have to say, her knowledge of Star Wars is phenomenal. I mean, she hasn't, she hasn't missed anything. You know, she's encyclopedic. I mean, she helps write the encyclopedias, so it's, it should not be a surprise. But that was such a strength for her writing that essay. I felt a little bad for her at a couple points because it's like she could not possibly include every instance of, of Twi'leks that come into Star Wars because that would be the entire book. But but because she 
is a fan, and she'll be the first to say that, I'm sure, um, she has such power of observation on the franchise. And I think the fans tend to have, tend to do the closest observations um, of, of, the, of the material. And then they come out with, you know, this, this, this something that they noticed, you know, and then that becomes, you know, a source of, of inquiry for them. And so, so I, I, I always want to encourage fans because it's like a superpower. Being, being a super fan is like a superpower because you, you, have, you can observe so closely, more closely than other people really have the tolerance for. No, I think you're exactly right. And you just made me realize something that, you know, a fan knows the landscape. They know what to pick out, what to, what to analyze, what the significance is, you know, which would lend itself to that kind of more rigorous study or examination that a non-fan or a civilian would not necessarily see the interesting subjects, the fodder for that kind of analysis beyond what's on the surface. Um, yeah, I mean, detachment is detachment, you know? I mean, it can yeah. be helpful. It, it can be helpful, especially when you're walking into a new situation to, to come with an outsider's perspective on something. But, but detachment is also detached. <laughs> so... You know, um, right? It keeps it keeps everything at arm's length, and I, I love immersion. I love the perspective of someone who's who's become just immersed in something. So, speaking of comparative religions, and I only mean that half half jokingly. Um, I know you both also wrote a volume of Star Trek essays, which, uh, full disclosure, I haven't um, had an opportunity to delve into the Star Trek volume, but. I'm wondering, now having edited a volume of essays on Star Trek and a volume of essays on Star Wars, if you have noticed any differences in, you know, the ideas that the two franchises are preoccupied with or ways that they treat certain subjects differently or similarly. I'll, I'll dive in here first. Um, and full disclosure, I am an original fan of Star Wars. And I talked my parents into taking my tiny little self to Star Wars six times because they knew that I loved everything about space. And they knew I loved everything about space because I was already watching reruns of Star Trek, the original series, and the original run of Star Trek, the animated series, and mm. was a full-fledged Star Trek fan, all right? So by the time I'm in kindergarten wearing Leia buns in my hair, I have Star Trek and Star Wars in my life. But as- Oh, I, I like you, Amy. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> I like you too. <laughs> and so I have always seen continuity there, and I think the books here just connect that. Um, and the, the carryover, I would point out, we have two wonderful essayists who also have carryover essays that, that speak to each other in the two volumes, um, specifically uh, Dr. Andrew Higgins, who is uh, studies uh, invented languages, and he does a comparison and a contrast with uh, an essay in each book about how Star Trek and Star Wars invented languages. And there are significant differences there in that Star Trek was looking at languages as foreign languages, whereas Star Wars was looking at languages more as sound design. And so they kind of evolved differently. 
But we also were very fortunate to have uh, amazing essays from John Jackson Miller, who has written, he's a, a terrific scholar, but he's also a brilliant uh, author of uh, original fiction uh, in both universes. And he has written in uh, Star Trek and Star Wars in earlier times and in, in current canon times. And he's thinking about what canonicity means and what the relationships have been between the films and series and the novels and comics and other um, tie-in materials. And, and he sees continuity and contrast there as well. But I think it's, it's interesting when, when you bring a, a sort of scholarly lens into it, particularly from the kinds of like intellectual history things that, that I do. I, I've, seeing the way people are relating to these these um, storytelling franchises and how fandom has, has evolved in each of them. And it did evolve differently, but they also evolved in tandem enough that you can see um, the multimedia uh, of fandom, whether that's writing letters to get a show back or co-creating some of these invented languages that fans were creating in fanzines and using fan art to back those up, fan film, uh, and finding out that actually what evolved as the official stuff was coming out of conversations between fans and create official creators, fan creators and official creators. Um, but also the, the ideas of time and history with with Star Trek really having a different view of history than Star Wars, Star Wars being the cyclical one and, and Star Trek being being more a uh, linear one, but also our relationship to the time in both of these, because Star Trek is our future. And Star Wars is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We are the future that Star Wars was dreaming of. Right. And that gives us sort of different relationships to those two stories. And I think that also comes through in the scholarship and thinking about what we're being asked to, um, to, to analyze and think about and what, in how to employ hope and how to employ um, role models and how to think about what the stories are encouraging us to do and what kind of mirrors are being held up um, to us and to our potentials. Uh, but I tend to see, that's a very long-winded, I'm sorry, way of saying I see a lot more continuity there than, than disruption between the two. And it, clearly with our, our essays, uh, and particularly those carryover essays, um, the, the scholars are as well, um, seeing points of, of connection there, I think. But Emily has probably has lots of other brilliant things <laughs> or different no. different things to say there. Well, the only thing I would add, and and all of that is, yeah, right on the money. And and by the way, Josh, I am a new fan to both of these franchises. So Star Trek, oh. I watched as a kid, you know, in syndication, you know, after school or late at night or whatever, you know, and I enjoyed it a lot, but I never was never could really consider myself a fan of it. Um, but um, I became a fan of both of these franchises. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I'm not even sure what inspired me, but I just wanted to kind of get into it. And Amy has been my guide for all of it. So she is a wonderful guide for all these reasons. And I, I agree having taken graduate courses on both Star Wars and Star Trek with Amy, um, you know, she, she really does 
she she helped she really helped to paint that picture of the subtle sometimes you know it's service level you know a lot of people kind of the layperson doesn't always know the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek right you know and they'll, they'll often say oh you're in that Star Trek costume thing you know and I'm like not yet but I do the Star Wars one um but you know, but the, one of the things that I would add, so Amy, Amy's explanation is just solid gold there, but um, because they do have these these kind of fundamental differences in many ways, um, but but also these points of continuity that um, that drive them both. Um, one that I've noticed is is the approach to technology um, is almost more taken for granted in Star Trek. And, and maybe less examined in Star Trek. I mean, there's always going to be the individual episodes, you know, or arcs that, that kind of deal with that. But, but in Star Wars, it's really a fundamental dilemma of how mm. you employ technology while retaining your humanity, you know, or, or whatever your species is, you know, um, uh, t- uh, you know, retaining that humanness that, you know, um, that puts humanity first, you know. Um, so it's a constant wrestling in Star Wars with because because some people do, you know, use technology and use it well. You know, um, the lightsaber is a technology, you know. And so so how do we use these things? Um, the Mandalorian technology, for instance, you know, we see how it can be used very well for good or we, it can be used for evil. And so, you know, even the character of Sabine Wren is is a is a, a portrait of that, you know. So throughout both Rebels and in Ahsoka, um, so so the, I would say that's another one that I would love, you know, I, that would be a fun study, you know, to take a look at at the expression of, you know, and the the anxieties around the use of technology in Star Wars, and and go looking for those in Star Trek and kind of compare what's found, you know, to those two things. That would be. See, see how these nope. things happen, Josh? Do you see how these things happen? You dream up these I, things, and then all of a sudden you're writing a paper. Next book. Next no, book. <laughs> well, no, I think you're right. And kind of that tension between technology and, I don't know what you want to call it, the transcendent humanity, I think, is yeah. um, is um, how you termed it in your essay, um, is kind of central to Star Wars. It's It's one of the central kind of animating ideas at the core of it whereas star trek i think is more you know look how great our tools are at this at this point in the future and look at what they allow us to be and what they allow us to do um uh, there is uh, the off episode like amy in the original series there's uh the ultimate computer with the m5 unit and, you know, whether or not computers are going to replace Starship crews, which I've been thinking about a lot recently with all of the the developments and AI and stuff. Um, so these are definitely ideas that are really alive and vital right now. And, you know, Emily, you what you just brought up, I have to say, my favorite essay was your essay about Arthur Lipsitz's film 2187. Be- Thanks. Uh, I enjoyed all of the essays. Um, the essay on the Twi'leks that we were talking about. Uh, the essay on the Knights of the Old Republic video mm. uh, video game, which is a game I've never actually played. But that essay made me realize that, um, that it might be an essential thing to experience from my understanding of the Force and the Jedi Sith. 
binary the the essay on the approach to invented languages i thought was super fascinating how they repurposed languages of indigenous cultures to kind of make sort of a hodgepodge language for for various creatures and this sort of uh, the essay in your uh, volume made me realize how problematic that is yeah. and i thought it was a good illustration and again a contrast with star trek like you were just saying because star wars while there are a lot of ideas that are animating the whole thing under the hood it's also at least initially was designed very much as a cinematic experience so the idea that the sound of the language was the most important thing rather than you know the coherence or the the internal consistency of it right um rang very true but the essay on on Arthur Lipsitz 2187 and how it was sort of central to Star Wars really it was like I was struck by lightning because it like really it made so many things f fall into place you know how central to Star Wars is that fight against dehumanization and human versus machine and the idea of humans as transcendent beings connected through a metaphysical force all of that is in that 10 minute short film from 1963 that George Lucas saw and you drew the parallel between or you drew a line from that to the Andor series and how those themes are really front and center in you know in almost explicit ways I think more so than many other Star Wars shows and films it was just really a really clarifying read it's not quite often that you encounter a new unifying theory of mm. something you think you're so familiar with. So, so I was just really, but I can't say it enough times. It it really had a large impact on me, uh, your oh, essay. And I'm I guess, so glad. and I guess, if there's a question in this, it it is, um, what inspired you to write about two one eight seven and Arthur Lipset? Yeah. Um... In terms of discovering Arthur Lipset and his importance to Star Wars, because, you know, everybody always talks about Joseph Campbell and even Tolkien and, and the influence of Tolkien and, and Joseph Campbell, especially Joseph Campbell, on George Lucas. But I felt like Lipset was lost. It, you know, he got lost in the shuffle and he, and he may have been just as influential or more influential to Lucas. Um I love the show Force Material, and I believe that they had a discussion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I believe they had a discussion several years ago about, and they mentioned Arthur Lipset, and they mentioned Twenty One Eighty Seven. And I know that there was a blog, a, a sort of a blog post on their site that went with it that I did. I do cite in the essay, um, and then I also ran across a little section on. The influence of 2187 on Lucas in Chris Taylor's book, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. So I know those two things were there. But I have to say, you know, I think as I get older, I really gravitate to these hidden figures of history. Um, and I, I, I sort of want, I don't want people to forget about them, especially when they contributed something that's just so essential to things that we, you know, we we understand freely or we take for granted now, you know, and, and I, I sensed, I sensed that with Arthur Lipset and I, I kind of, Hey, he had, he was such an interesting figure. Just, you know, he obviously struggled with mental illness, you know, um, 
He he used you know drugs uh, both prescription and, and recreationally, um, and and all these things. But he also he just had a tra- yeah a tragic story. You know his um, his family. You know it, it came from a Jewish family, but it you know in in those decades after the Second World War, I mean it's very difficult to continue for many people to continue to be Jewish or religious at all in in light of what happened you know, in Europe during the Second World War. And, and so, but, but we lose something when we abandon all that. You know, we lose something. And to me, Arthur Lipset is an emblem of w- what can be lost because man himself was kind of like, I don't want to say he was lost in life because he, he, he was a very creative figure who, who had, a, you know, had a good deal of success. But he seems like he was just always searching for something that he just couldn't find or he could, just couldn't make the connection. And again, maybe I'm reading in, maybe I'm reading in, but um, uh, Amelia Doe's um, biography of him was so good and it was very shaping to my thought on him. And she, she was kind enough not only to share with me her self-published bio, uh, biography of him uh, for, for nothing. I just inquired with her. I said, how can I buy this biography? It's self-published. And she said, here, I'll, I'll send it to you. Here you go. She's very kind. But she, then she also read my paper and um, commented on it. Really, really was very encouraging with it. And um, so, so I hope I'm not speaking out of turn from the impression that I got from, from her work and from the other works that I read about him. But, but he, he was somebody who needed transcendence, who needed transcendent connection with other people. And, and he ultimately, you know, only got it in fits and spurts. And, and, you know, he was dead by his own hand by the time he was 50. And um, to me, that's just so tragic, especially given that his film is the place we first hear mention of a force, you know, a force that connects everybody. You know, I, I can't remember the exact um, words. Uh, he says nature or something, appreciation of nature or, you know, some transcendent con- connection. And George Lucas, you know, he snapped that up. And, and, and you know, as is, as is our right, when we encounter wonderful art, we want to take it and use it as inspiration for our own. And and so um, that's a lot of word vomit, but basically I, I, I just felt such a strong sense of empathy for Lipset as an individual, especially, and, and a sense of gratitude that he put it that way and left it out, you know, for Lucas to find. And, and um, so, so I, just, I, I just love everything about discovering him and his influence. And I, I just, I feel like I, I just wanted to be a promoter of him and his ideas and his, and so that more people, you know, could understand, yeah, Joseph Campbell, sure, Tolkien, all right. And Arthur Lipset as well. Arthur Lipset is, is one of the reasons that we're all here. And one of the reasons that, that George Lucas created this thing that we love and connect with. Um, yeah. And as a religious person myself, I just, I feel like there's a lot of good, you don't have to be religious. You don't have to subscribe to a church or belong to whatever, but, but making that transcendent connection with others in a, in an intentional way can do such good in our world. And, and, um, and I think that's, that's something I can just kind of get behind with the passion that <laughs> will, will drive me for many years, I think. No, completely. And that sense about him and his life and his work and his his legacy i got all of that from your essay and i am really compelled to watch all of his films now and you know i think another reason it it, it struck a chord again 
It's because, like I mentioned, you know, a lot of those ideas are super relevant to this moment we're currently living through with the role of technology, either in the form of social media or the AI stuff that I don't really want to get into right now because I'll go on about it for a long time. Um, but, you know, how technology is really mediating our existence and that sort of transcendent quality of human life is sort of getting lost or obscured. And I just felt like there was a book that just came out that's all about the Luddite movement. And it made me realize that, you know, the Luddites were not the anti-technology scaredy cats that mm. we thought that it was really more about making sure that there was a role for the human and preserving human dignity when deploying these technologies. And reading your essay, I was kind of viewing Arthur Lipset as a similar sort of a figure from the past that, you know, needs to be reclaimed and almost used as a as a rallying cry for right a, a prophetic voice you know yeah somebody who's yeah. you know prophets prophets weren't people who who predicted the future they were just there to say you know this is i've got a message from the divine about what will happen in the future if you continue on the path you're on you know right and again it's not it's not uh you know an oracle of some kind it's 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 a warning, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, just kind of a stark picture of your inevitable future. Yeah. And he, so, yeah, he, I get that. I got that vibe from him very much so. So, so all of this is to say, I don't know if this has come across enough, but your essay really struck a chord with me. So, so thank you very much for, for writing. Oh, thank you um, for considering it deeply as you clearly have. And, and yes, you can be with me in the Arthur Lipset fan club. Okay, great. Um, are there any essays that didn't make the cut that you wish had? Mm, hmm. Or that's that you miss? <laughs> okay. That's a toughie. Well, I would say, you know, yes. Uh, yeah, here, I'll talk about one. Because, uh, so a good friend of mine from, so Amy, Amy teaches for Signum University. And Signum is a wonderful place for the study of speculative fiction of all kinds, right? Do, is that about a, a good assessment, Amy? Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. And I, so I've taken many courses there over the years, and I've uh, I made a friend named Jay Moses. He's a, um, oh, I think he's a Methodist uh, minister. And um, Jay is great. Uh, Jay and I, obviously, we have a lot of ideas in common and things like that and uh, common senses of humor and common fandoms as well um harry potter star trek uh star wars all that stuff and so and and jay has gotten really involved in the sick community in um in his i, I know in, in various places that he's lived he sh with me shares an interest in the religion of sikhism or sikhi um they're the ones who wear the beards and the turbans and the you know yeah so it's a really cool religion, and so Jay and I are also both fans of, of Sikhi, and I really wanted Jay to write an essay about the Sikhs and the Jedi and the shared uh, kind of history and, and all that stuff. Mm. And, and poor Jay had to, he had to pick up and move kind of in the middle of our book process. He's, he, I, you know, I got, I got a promise from him, but then he said, oh, I just don't think I can do it. And 
So it was going to be a big project. And, you know, so that was that was one essay where I, I still say, oh, Jay, you still owe me that essay. <laughs> you still owe me that. Next but time. I would love to, I would, yeah, next time, next time. So, so I'm, I'm still looking forward to that one. So, so yes, unfortunately, this, the academic process is, is you do, there's, you know, some essays get lost along the way. You always want to pick more than you envision actually publishing in the book. Um, because p- th- things happen. I mean, the pandemic was still kind of going on um, at, when we were editing the books. And um, so, you know, things do get lost in the shuffle. But but I still hope for, for that, that essay on the six and the Jedi. Sounds fascinating. I would read. Well, I've never seen anything. I, there's tons of stuff on Buddhism. Yeah. And there's stuff on yeah. Hinduism. Um, there's st- lots of stuff on Christianity. Uh, maybe even there's some stuff out there about Judaism, Judeo-Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never seen anything about Saki and, 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 the, yeah, and, I, and I think there's, yes, yeah, saint soldiers, you know, guys who are, who are meant to, you know, be religious figures, but then also defend the weak and, and keep the peace. You know, I think that's, there's a lot that could be said there. Yeah. So. There's some resonance there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well now I really want to read that essay. So. I know um, Jay, come on. Amy, are you a Rogue One fan? Rogue One is, in fact, my favorite Star Wars film. So, uh, that, yes, wow. that is not uh, said lightly as someone who has been there since 1977, let me tell you. I, yes, I, I, I am say. very invested in, in Rogue One and how it shifts the focus of, uh, of Star Wars storytelling. Absolutely. And everything that goes with it, including, for example, the Guardians uh, of the Wills novel and uh, manga adaptation, all of that good stuff. Um, the the supporting novels, um, Catalyst, and all all of it. Yes. So the short answer, yes. <laughs> and Andor. Yeah. Andor. And Andor. And, and Andor. I Josh, you should have seen us Andor. scrambling when Andor came out because we were really you could write a whole book deadlines. about that. Oh, really? Oh, and and it wow. will happen. It will happen. But we were really nearing our deadlines. But but yes. that show Im- deeply impacted several of the essays yes. and. Um, and it impacted mine. It impacted, um, Vicki Terrelly's essay on makers, um, and economic issues in Star Wars. Um, yeah. so, so we, we were scrambling to, to add some analysis from Andor, but when we were, our, our publisher was very good and we were able to add some and, but, oh gosh, that's just a wealth of, of ideas that just need to be mind you know for the sake of our society frankly i mean there's just so much in there that could really really help us think more clearly about our situations i will have to invite you guys on again to discuss either rogue one and or and or when season two comes out yeah that that really that show so so and rogue one also to your point amy you know star wars the films i think rely a lot on the aesthetics of fascism to kind of communicate the idea that this is an evil empire and they're really awful and evil. And even things like the destruction of Alderaan in the original Star Wars is kind of an abstraction because you don't actually see it. Right. You see the the sort of 30,000 foot view, but you don't really see what was lost. You don't really feel... Um, whereas Rogue One, what I thought was so effective about Rogue One is that it's 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 really showing you what life is like under the empire exactly. and how bad occupation, it is. Occupation yeah. on the streets, what daily life is like. Absolutely. I think that's, and that's, that's also a- why I loved Andor. 
for the right. same reason. Exactly. And seeing everyday people who are just trying to survive on or ultimately, hopefully, reclaim their street, not the galaxy, not overthrow, just, just their street, you know? Just Rick's Road. I, exactly. Uh, I just got goosebumps. I love Andor so much. <laughs> I just I just finished a rewatch. I just finished a rewatch. So I'm like, yeah, but like that's Marva Andor, right? She's just like, just get off my lawn, right? Like yeah, get out of right. here, you know. We were fine. We were fine without you. Oh, that show is so good. I will definitely yeah. if you guys are game, I will definitely have to have you back on to talk some some Love Andor that. and Rogue One. Oh yeah. Um so uh where can listeners find your collection? Star Wars Essays from a Galaxy Far, Far Away they're interested in, in picking up a copy and read sure so it's for sale on our publisher's website which is vernon press it's also available Please. where books are sold generally speaking like amazon um just a note about the pricing it is it's only available in hardcover now we're hoping for a paperback version that will be a little bit less but the pricing is um ebooks are also available but they're also very expensive um, because the pricing is academic pricing and it's, you know, the the primary market there is academic institutions and especially libraries. So one great way to get a hold of the book if you don't have $9187 or something like that to cough up um for it is to request that your local library, especially an academic library, will purchase the book. And uh my husband is an academic librarian. He he just checked. He said like I want to say he, he he told me the number of libraries that have purchased our book, which was, I was pleased by that number. I can't remember what it is now, but I was pleased. Um, so so it could be that your library already has it, and it all, could be that they'll purchase it if you request that they do. So, Yes, in, in again, hard copy or ebook form, libraries can do both. So. For a text like this, I have come to really appreciate the electronic version, just because I make so many highlights. Right. Absolutely. And then, in the same way. Yeah. And then I love, at least with a Kindle, you have a little text file that has all of your highlights. So it's just all right there and you can see everything that you you highlighted. I have a lot of highlights from this. Um, see, that's uh, great Ludo, use of technology. Great yes, use. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Furthers our humanity. Before we sign off here, is there anything you wanted to mention or anything that I did not ask about that you think warrants some note? One, one quick thing for, for both of the books, the Star Wars and Star Trek books, we were incredibly fortunate to work with artist Emily Austin, who created original artwork, original paintings. And so this, this beautiful cover here is her original artwork. And I just wanted to give her a shout. She's online with her artwork, but uh, remarkable. And it was a privilege to get to work with her as we were putting the books together to talk to her about the cover art. And uh, so that was a thrill. So shout out to Emily Austin. Yeah, absolutely. When, when we first kind of got together on this idea to do this, Amy was the one who was like, I don't want our books to be ugly. <laughs> so, sadly, a lot of academic texts are like, you know, just like kind of just words on a green background yeah. or something, you know, it's, it's just kind of ugly and like, you know, a lot of them are, cause it's like the ideas are what, but we were so pleased. I mean, beyond what we expected when, when Emily came to us with these, with these uh, beautiful, beautiful um, space scapes. And um, so really honored to have, and she's at um, emilyaustindesign.com, I think. And the only other thing I'll mention is that we both have our websites. I'm at emilystrand.com. So, I am try really hard to keep it up to date. 
And I'm amyhsturgis.com. And Amy probably does a better job of keeping hers up to date. <laughs> Do you guys have a new project that you're currently working on to go on the shelf next to those? In terms of Star Wars and Star Trek, I, I ha- actually have one more book that released this year. Um, oh. with It's a companion book to uh, the podcast that I co-host, which is called Potterversity. And if the name doesn't tell you, it's a it's an academic uh, Harry Potter podcast that I host uh, together with Dr. Katie McDaniel. And it's a MuggleNet podcast. And so we just had a book come out um, with McFarland, which is also it also has that kind of title, Harry Potter Essays Exploring a, uh, uh, the Essays Exploring the World of Harry Potter. I'm sorry, Potterversity Essays Exploring the World of Harry Potter. So this is a big year for me in books called Essays Exploring. And um, so so that's a new thing. But um I have another podcast called Meet Father Rivers, which is a, a podcast about um, uh, the um, music in the Catholic Church and the the kind of um, history of it uh, in the especially in the 20th century and onward. That um, it is it's a little bit of an anti racism project. Um, our podcast is, and so we have some some irons in the fire in terms of um, a book collection, uh, a, a you know um, a book that is a collection of essays or 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 a book. Um, yeah, just generally uh, that goes along with the podcast. So, so that's kind of the direction I've been going. Um, but then there's lots of, I've seen lots of great opportunities for, um, there's a Star Wars conference. that's going to be at, at DePaul University, uh, on May the 4th next year. And so I was thinking about submitting to that. And so there's all, all kinds of cool things, uh, going on, but, but no, uh, no, no books on the, on the horizon. Although I do miss sending email, you know, at least seven emails a day to Amy Sturgis, uh, we don't have well, anything I mean, planned right now. Well, I mean, strictly speaking, there's nothing stopping you, I suppose. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I just sent her, yeah, hey, here's a picture of my cat. No. <laughs> and I have been working on uh, a project that I'm not quite sure where it's going to land in terms of, of what it's going to end up with, but it is related uh, in that it's it's connected to um, an essay that I wrote for for Emily on uh, on dark academia, and I've just taught a graduate course on dark academia, and I've just done a, a presentation with Sheffield Gothic, consuming the Gothic Conference uh, on dark academia, and there is a project that is developing around two real-life missing students, historic missing students who went uh, missing from their campuses and how their cases have been treated in dark academia since then in in novels, in imaginative explorations of what might have happened to them and how that has played out in the conversation being held right now in in uh, dark academia, its intersections with the Gothic and with crime, crime novels as well. So that is a project that is wanting to be something larger and I'm uh, in the middle of research on that right now. So we'll see where that lands. Forgive my ignorance, but what is dark academia? So I'm talking about the literary or storytelling tradition uh, as if there is an aesthetic that's related, that's, you know, plaid and that sort of thing. And it's related to nostalgia and campuses, but, but, um, but dark uh. academia itself as in terms of storytelling tradition goes back quite a ways and uh, can be traced to, to great authors like Donna Tartan and, and Shirley Jackson. And if you look at it the right way, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. And uh, it's, it's Gothic storytelling that's basically set with something related to the project of academia. So students, professors, uh, campuses, 
uh, laboratories, libraries, that sort of thing that uh, has a gothic kind of storytelling, a, a focus on death in some way, whether that's um, a morbid fascination with death or uh, taboo uh, research aimed at thwarting death or even even things like um, social death uh, in the sense of, of bullying or, or um, other, other negative things that can happen on campus. But the heart of dark academia is critique of power relationships and really the a campus environment creates a pressure cooker situation where we can see what hypocrisy and, and power imbalances and inequality, what, what they look like um, in, a, in a very intense little package, but they're universal uh, uh, issues. And whether that's bullying of classmates or faculty members misusing their, their authority or secret societies run amok or deaths or missing persons on campus, those sorts of things. They're all, all uh, opportunities for uh, critiquing power structures and, and asking how we can do better. So that's the, that's the thumbnail version. <laughs> but all Gothic stuff is, is the past coming back to haunt the present, whether that's a personal past or, or a big, large-scale past. But right. the Gothic, to me, is very much connected to the history of science fiction. And you, you, it, it was a necessary condition for modern science fiction to happen. And so uh, I, I see these as much more related than they might, they might sound at first blush there. Well, that's very interesting. I feel like you invoked uh, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. I feel like that's sort of the, I don't know, what's the word? It's like the singularity where right. those things intersect and, and sort mm-hmm. of come like out the other pen. end. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's a better word for that. Um, oh, well, wow. I might have to start a whole other podcast so I can have you on to talk about that. <laughs> um, well, I feel like I could talk to you both for quite a long time about a whole wide range of subjects, but, um, this has been so much I, fun. I know. No, thank yet, you for all the smart questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, um, I try to give something of substance. I don't always succeed, but I, I try, but I want to thank both of my guests, Emily Strand and Amy H. Sturgis for their time and for their work. And if you liked what you heard, please follow TrashCompod on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Transcripts of this episode and all our other episodes are available at trashcompod.com. Links to Emily and Amy's work and websites will be in the show notes. And we will see you on the next one.